0: hello my friends this is daniel cleland uh the ceo and co-founder of Soltara healing center in costa rica and in peru and you are listening to the sme stories podcast
1: you are now listening to the next great small business podcast welcome to the sme stories podcast where it is all about small businesses in canada and here's your host ken alfred hey everybody thanks down the show we got a great episode today with daniel cleland so daniel cleland is an author and we're going to be talking about his latest release Um, but just a little bit about daniel cleland actually so daniel Cleland is the ceo of saltara healing center which gained worldwide recognition in 2019 as the preeminent chibibo healing center outside of peru and is now regularly visited by most of the prominent influencers celebrities and public figures Cleland holds a masters of interculture and international communication but he learned his hard knock style of scaling from years of traveling living and hustling in the merciless amazon jungles of south america He is actually referred to as the indiana jones of entrepreneurship his previous book was called pulse of the jungle where he described how the peruvian jungle awakened him expanding his mind and new insights into entrepreneurship now the book that we're gonna be talking about today is his newest release which will be coming out soon which is called the 12 laws of the jungle how to become a lethal entrepreneur so it's going to be a very fun episode today as i've always wanted to have an author on the show and uh, just inspire others on what to do and if they want to be an author so sit back and absorb all right guys we have daniel cleland accomplished author dan how you doing my friend
0: very well sir thank you very much ken for having me on i appreciate it i'm happy to be here happy to speak with you and connect with your audience
1: Oh, that's great. And and just so the listeners know, like, Dan is our first international guest. And like I mentioned before, in a few previous episodes, when I was like, oh, wow, we have US people coming on the show. Now we have someone literally uh, in a nice warm area right now, because it's starting to get cold here in Canada. I think we're now starting to get in the fall season. But uh, I mean, where are you right now, Dan, just so the listeners can be jealous when they hear where you're from right now?
0: Uh, yeah, well, <clears throat> actually... I I was born and raised in Canada. I grew up in Walkerton, Ontario, Uh, went to college in London, Ontario, lived in Calgary, lived in Vancouver, lived in Victoria, uh, worked on the ocean out in the West Coast for a a year, um, and uh, also lived in Kelowna. But now for the past five years, I've been living in Costa Rica, which is where I am right now. I also spent... um, I've spent actually the better part of the last 15 years in Latin America. I lived, um I, I've been, like I said, I've been here in Costa Rica for five years. Before that, I lived in Peru for, uh, for about four years running, uh, running a healing center there in the Amazon jungle. Um, and, uh, before that, I lived in Brazil. I also, uh, worked as a, as a tour, guide working all over Latin America from Costa Rica, Panama, Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, Brazil, Argentina. Um so as we say here in Costa Rica, you know, I may be Canadian, but uh soy más tico que gallo pinto, which means uh I'm already I'm more Costa Rican than Gallo Pinto, which is their favorite dish here. their, their uh. typical kind of classic <laughs> dish here. So rice and beans
1: rice and beans there you go and you know so you can hear where all all the places he's been so dan's only just a little bit he's only been he's only seen the world just a little bit right compared to most, most people most <laughs> the
0: americas uh i haven't done a, a ton around like asia or Af- i haven't been to africa at all i've been to europe uh a, a, a little bit um you know maybe six or eight countries in europe um uh, maybe two countries in asia i think thailand and japan but I really love the Americas. I love uh, I love the U.S. I love Mexico. I love, you know, any anything from, like, Costa Rica, South. Um, so, you know, I've, I've just I've made a point to really kind of make the Americas my backyard.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, and the funny thing is, I'll, I'll just make this a little bit myself here, but um, before I met my wife, Mrs. K, for the first 24 years of my life, I've only been to three countries. Canada, obviously I was born in Canada when I would play hockey in the U.S. for like those tournaments. And the one time I went to the Philippines in 1986. So up until when I was 24 years old, those are the only places I've ever been. Now, my wife, she was born in Hong Kong, and now we've been to a lot of different places. So I appreciate those who've been all over, like, like and then you went all over the place. Like you said, you haven't touched those other areas, but to me, it's like, well, that's just a matter of time before you visit Africa and other parts of Asia as well, right? Especially you might have to do like your book tour, where you're touring around the world, my friend, because right. you know you, you you're a couple. You wrote a couple of books already. I know we're going to talk about that. So, you know, let let's start with that. So, Dan Cleland, author, what's your story?
0: Well, um, you you mean the the book story, or or kind of uh, what what kind of got me to this point?
1: I keep it open on purpose, so people can go in whatever direction they want to go with that one, especially for. Especially how their company was developed and stuff like that. So we'll start with the developing your company. Let's start with that.
0: Sure. Okay. Sure. Great. Um, and happy to. Uh, yeah, happy to speak with a fellow Canadian. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Walkerton, Ontario. a very fairly typical uh, upbringing in uh in rural rural Canada. Um, you know, like I said, I just I went to London when I was eighteen. Did some college there. Um, not particularly uh, stellar in terms of, uh, grades in either high school or college, not so much because I was dumb, but because I, I, I was unmotivated, I guess, and, and, and more concerned about kind of partying than, uh, than, uh, doing well in school. Um, but that basically left me, uh, with few career options when I got out of college at kind of 23. So I got into sales work, and just, uh, you know, kind of uh, went, uh, went uh, into the sales industry and moved up the ladder in sales. Got to a point around 25 where um, I was just utterly unenthused with, with typical, you know, like you kind of, when you're, go- when you're growing up, everything's fun and everybody around you's is like concerned about partying and having fun and going out and beating girls and stuff like that. Uh, But then around 25, you know, people start dropping off, they start getting married, they start getting careers, they start getting older, they start getting boring. And uh, at about that point, I found, uh, I found myself wanting to continue the adventure. So that's when I started traveling, I, uh, I made a trip to Brazil when I was 25. Um, it was a very, like very much, uh, independent thing. I was living in Calgary at the time, working a sales job, an industrial sales job. And, uh, I went down to Brazil. I, I bought a big map. I, I learned about the country. I, uh, learned a little bit of Portuguese and, um, planned a journey down there for six weeks. It was, uh, it was super exciting. I went down there. Went started in Rio and then went down down south down through Parachi and uh, Ila Grande and then down to Florianopolis and uh, and then back to Rio and ended up spending the last few weeks like working in a rooftop patio bar making caipirinhas and partying until four or five in the morning every night meeting a different girl every week um, and and uh, having just the best time of my life and then I go back to Canada to Calgary in the middle of January and it's like freezing and um go back to the sales job and i'm like yeah this is this is not going to cut it for me anymore so um i ended up kind of shifting gears and and went down uh to work as a tour leader for a canadian company actually g Adventures, based in toronto but they just kind of specialize in the, in the latin american uh, market and and all over the world um so i go down to uh to work as a tour leader <clears throat> Traveling through all those aforementioned countries, um, just kind of getting all this experience in, in tourism, learning the languages and things like that. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I, I ended up kind of wanting to do something a little more uh, impactful. So I go back to Canada. I, I try to further my education um, and uh, ended up uh, going to, uh, to college in Kelowna, British Columbia, uh, because uh, the the grades I had generated earlier on in life, which were like, I mean, average like 52, like just ter- like very, very like barely scraping by, um, I was not able to get into any uh, reputable university with those grades. So. Um, So I went to college did a year of upgrades like I had to upgrade like grade 11 English and my grade 12 math and like I took some 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 university level courses in college, really committed to like bettering myself. Um, And then at the end of that year, I did pretty good you know I was getting like, like a averages um, in, in all those courses. And then um, at the end of that year, I went on a you know my sense of adventure was still very strong and kind of got the best of me. And one of my teachers, an environmental uh, issues teacher, was doing a field trip to Australia, so she invited uh, uh, she invited me to go on this field trip, and I couldn't say no. Uh, I ended up going with this group of like thirty students. Down I wouldn't say no to, to
1: I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say no to Australia as well. So it's like sure. Love to go there.
0: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it was, you know, it was interesting. It was like go to Vanuatu and go to Australia um, and uh, <clears throat> got, to, uh, got to Australia, you know, did the whole thing with the students. And, uh, and then at, at the end of the trip, um, actually, I, I, I got this idea to try to further uh, education there. So I, I ended up staying in Australia, taking a big risk, getting a door-to-door sales job, uh, and, uh, and then all the, the students go back. Um, but that turned out to be an errant decision. And, uh, and over time, uh, that whole like, experience in Australia just went to complete shit, long story short. Um, found myself in like, a very challenging place and that culminated with climbing a mountain one night and falling off, uh, cl- climbing a mountain wasted one night, uh, oh, falling off, falling 20 meters, free falling 20 meters and, uh, and breaking my femur and my pelvis and spending the next uh, 40 days in the hospital in Australia. And um, uh, that was, you know, I'm, I'm going on 30 at that time basically have like nothing going on for myself. So like, just, just in terms of connecting with your listeners, like every entrepreneur has their own kind of aha moment or their own moment of like, you know, for whatever reason, whatever pushed them into business, it was like, I'm not getting what I want from life or like, I want, I need more cash. I need more options. I need more time. I want more control over my destiny, whatever it is. And, and this was kind of the point for me because I'm like 30 years old, laying in a hospital bed, all busted up. You know, I've got no career. I've got no money. I've got no track record. The, the one major effort I made to like start putting my life back together by going to college that one year, you know, went completely off track when I stayed in Australia to work this kind of sales job. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're turning like 30 – The world starts measuring you based on your actual achievements not about your potential about how how smooth you can talk or whatever how well you know Mm -hmm. it's like what have you done you know especially like girls when you're you know when girls are kind of uh getting up in in age like that they're like you know they want a guy who's responsible who's able to provide who's able to you know take care of them provide some material resources um so, I found myself being less and less successful in the romance market as well as I became less and less successful in in the in the economic market um, so anyways, that was kind of my my aha moment, my rock bottom when i'm laying in the hospital bed, like, what the fuck am I do with my life and that's when I decided to go and experience ayahuasca and I'm sure some of your listeners have heard about ayahuasca. But um, for me, it was really about getting control over my life and really finding my vision and finding my path. And, um, and because, you know, fortunately, because as I explained, I had like this kind of foray into Latin America working in tourism, um, I, I knew the area. And so I went to experience ayahuasca. This is back in 2010. And it, it basically really helped me get a grip on my on my life and and kind of set myself straight um, in a very rapid way. Um, so I started uh, leading group tours down to uh, down to the jungle to do ayahuasca, um, utilizing that experience I had leading tours in the past. And I was doing that to kind of subsidize my own study with the plant medicines. And um, and that really just became like not only uh, functionally, a cure for my list, my aimlessness, a cure for my depression, a cure for my self-kind of contempt for making so many seemless, seeming mistakes over the years. But uh, it also became the service that undergirded my my adventure into entrepreneurship. So you know, kind of from that point, I basically after having so many experiences of hating jobs, like, like, like just being absolutely miserable in every single job that I ever had, which is why I was like jumping from one job to the next, you know, every six months or every year. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners can identify with that. Um, just being utterly unhappy with the typical job, which is why you go into business. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I basically decided that entrepreneurship was the way forward. So I started studying entrepreneurship and learning from people like Tim Ferriss, and you know, Tony Robbins, and, and, um, and podcasts like this one, where, you know, you're, you're able to just consume, consume, consume this great content and learn from other people who have walked the path before you learn, learn what they have to say and teach. And then bit by bit, I built my business from a one man operation, uh, you know, to, uh, like bootstrapping with my own money, working a sales job in Canada and kind of, you know, managing my own web content and all the sales and the budgeting and the payment processing and all that kind of stuff. And then going from there to, you know, two people to four people, then, you know, now we have about, I think 40 people in the organization. We have three locations, one in Peru, two in Costa Rica, uh, you know, m- multi seven figure business. Um, and, uh, you know, it's life is, life is great. And this is, you know, I guess since that point, since that low point in the hospital bed, it's been about what, 12, 12, 13 years or so. And I've been fully on my own for about 10 years now.
1: Wow. It's, it's a lot to absorb in that story there. And, and thanks for that, Dan. Like, you covered a lot of ground. I'd be like, "All right, guys, we're done with the podcast." No, I'm kidding. We have a few more questions <laughs> for that, obviously, because you went through the entire journey and like all these different things. And you had your aha moment when you were just laying in the hospital bed. And you know, I mean, it's great that you're able to turn this around already. And you're like staff of forty. I mean, wow, that that's something that's a nerve. So, so, what makes your business so successful compared to like other businesses that you've you know seen or or you talk to other owners or anything like that? What makes it so successful?
0: Well, I mean. Uh, that's what, that's what the whole book is about the 12 laws of the jungle, which are the, basically the 12 principles that I have seen being put into practice, um, uh, over the, over the years. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a a whole kind of collection of things like, first of all, um, first of all, the, some of the, 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 the more difficult experiences I've had that have tested my will have allowed me to really weather the, the storms of growth because growing a business is, is very hard, especially if you're, you know, if you're, if you're not super well capitalized um, or if you're in a risky market, um, you really have to have grit and endurance to sustain yourself and sustain the organization through the really stressful and hard times. So I think having, having, um, tested my will, uh, before getting into business was one aspect that allowed me to, <clears throat> to really stay, stay strong through the hard times and, and keep everything afloat and bootstrap things when I need to, or go on like emergency fundraising hunts when I needed to, things like that. But I think in terms of this business, Soltara, it's really the people that the people um, that we attract into this organization. Uh, I mean, first of all, you need to have a strong market for your product or service. Like, you you know, you need to, if there's no market, you're not going to sell anything, but um, you know, we found a really good market. The timing was good for this particular business But what really sets us apart um, is the amount of talent that we brought into this organization. And there's a certain, there's a certain uh, nuance to attracting super top quality talent. Um, You know, you, you really have to put your people first. So I actually have two chapters in the book that are about, uh, about the team, about people. Law six is build your masterful tribe. And, uh, Law 11 is let the village eat first. Um, And by the way, the the first point I mentioned there, law one of the book is the jungle doesn't care. The jungle doesn't care if you live or die and nor does the market. Um, So that's kind of about upgrading your mental toughness. Um, And then, you know, law two is um, shape your mind to warfare. Law three is learn to hunt, which is about selling. Uh, law four is set your destination, which is about vision. Law five is map your route, which is about setting a strategic, uh, a, a set of strategic checkpoints. Law six is uh, build your masterful tribe, which is about attracting top quality talent. Law seven is plan for snake bites, which is about uh, building resilience against <clears throat> betrayals and setbacks and downturns and stuff like that. Law eight is master your resources, which is about ensuring your business has, uh, uh, abundant profits to, uh, to keep your organization healthy. Law nine is sharpen your spear, which is about getting yourself into prime fighter condition. Um, so that you don't miss opportunities when they come up spontaneously. Uh, law 10 is, um, uh, Law ten. <laughs> law eleven is uh, let the village eat first, and law twelve is uh, prepare for winter, uh, which is uh, which is about um, preparing for the inevitable economic winters, which is we're entering one right now.
1: Yeah, dear. And sorry, can you just repeat law ten, actually? Because I think you just cut out there just for a split second, and then when you came back, yeah, you were no, already I, into law eleven. I, I
0: actually. Uh, yeah, no, I, I actually can't remember what law 10 is. Right
1: you got now. a lot of laws there, my friend. And, and this, is the, these are the, this is the 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 this is rules that you follow, how oh, you wait, build. Law, the, law oh, 10. you got it? Okay. Let's law go. 10
0: is the time to kill is now, which is about there we go. executing with urgency and executing relentlessly.
1: Okay. No, good. I mean, it's a lot of laws okay. there and that's, that's the laws you follow and you, and then you feel that if, if entrepreneurs are even anyone thinking about starting a business, they follow these 12 laws, they should be that. they should it's not going to guarantee success, but at least it gives them a better probability of success versus maybe any other system. And that was why one of the questions I was wondering is, so what makes your book so so different? Because I'm sure if anyone goes to, let's say, a chapters or they go to any Amazon, they'll see all these entrepreneurial books of all these sort of things. So what makes yours so special?
0: Well, first of all, I'm writing from the arena right? Like I'm writing from personal lived experience. Um, and, you know, so it's not just theory. It's not just a business book about the business theory. It's like, this is real wartime journaling, which brings a reader into the experience of actually running a business. Um, and uh, you know, I use plenty of examples from, from both myself and other people. Um, the, 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 the actual context of this book is set in the pandemic lockdowns. So, um, so I actually started writing this book just before COVID hit. Oh man. Right. So, 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 so I was like, you know, I had, I had built, I built, you know, I, I, I started my first business in uh, 2011 and I had built up, that business from a one-man show to building this uh very successful retreat center in peru which i built in 2013 sorry 2014 built that up it became the top rated center in peru i sold that in 2017 and then moved up to costa rica and started soltara which opened in 2018 and by like january 2020 uh it was it was you know finally profitable it had it had Uh, public attention there were influencers talking about it we had a full staff we had full bookings we had good margins strong brand everything like that and that was in January 2020 and so I started writing this in like January 2020 February 2020 and I was going to tell the story of how I made it and how you can too right and then literally like three weeks later that thing from China became that thing in China in Italy to that thing in China, Italy and Iran. and then All over the world. February 2020 <laughs> it was that thing fucking everywhere, right? Yeah. And then um, literally like at the end of February, I was doing this like uh, victory lap in United States. I was at this red carpet event for a a, a high profile documentary that was filmed here. And then I went to like a a business conference, you know, like all VIP stuff. I went backstage to a rock concert from one of my favorite metal bands who like invited me to go and hang out because they wanted to come drink ayahuasca at my place. You know, (laughs) so I'm like, I'm like on top of the world, ready to write a book about how I made it. And then boom, two weeks later, Costa Rica's first case of COVID in Costa Rica seals the borders. No warning overnight. I have eight steps eight employees from Peru and international stranded living with me here in in Costa Rica that I now have to take care of for who knows how long. I have to keep the bills being paid for who knows how long. I've got all these customers begging and screaming for their deposits back, you know, and who knows how many more are going to continue asking for deposits as the the lockdowns continue. Um, I've got a $320,000 balloon payment for the mortgage on the property coming up in a few months. Um, you know, I've got regular monthly mortgage payments, like all these things. And it's like, all of a sudden the government says, you now get zero revenue starting tomorrow. And we're not going to tell you when that ends. You're just going to have to wait it out. And so then, so then this whole book is set in the context of that high point to then the, the low point of the announcement of the, of the lockdowns and then going basically how I carried the business through those like six or seven treacherous months of, of complete uncertainty and lockdown mayhem. um, How I got the, you know, the balloon payment paid off, um, how I kept my staff and my business alive throughout all that time. And then how we reopened with a bang with you know, with a, a world famous influencer who came down to uh, do a do a you know a keynote event with us, and then we ended up becoming way stronger on the other side of those lockdowns. Uh, and now, I mean, we're just we're on fire right now. We're booked out for you know four to six months in advance in three locations. Um, yeah. Our team has never been stronger. You know, we've had several famous people down here uh, as of late, um, and so this book kind of tells uh in the context of that whole trajectory how each of these 12 laws and principles allowed me to achieve uh you know not only sustainability but 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 a high high level of success throughout uh those very treacherous and unexpected circumstances
1: wow that's that's really great to hear and and just so like like lot, like I said, another thing, a lot to try to absorb in that whole whole thing there, which is okay, right? So if you can t- backtrack just a second there, so about your company, Soltera, is that how I pronounce it? Soltera. soltara Soltara. Okay, sorry. If you can just yeah. explain to the listeners, because I know some of them may be like, oh, he's an author, and then we're thinking about a book, and they're like, what's this other company he's talking about? Can you briefly describe yeah. what that is to the listeners as well? Because some of the, the some of the stories from the book are about you building that company as well, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Soltara is is the primary uh, is the primary it's it's really it's it's my primary business right now. It's pretty much my only business, except for uh, um, uh, a heavy metal band we're starting called Savage Existence. But um, yeah, so Soltara, you know, we're we're uh, we're a healing center. Um, as I explained earlier, you know, I I, I got into this world of uh, ayahuasca. I, I, do you know what ayahuasca is?
1: Tell that to the listeners as well, just in case, because I might just so I don't, uh, so I can nod my head and say yes, but it's nice to hear the the official version of it.
0: Okay, so yeah, I I just did a a plant medicine. So I'm kind of doing like three different tiers of podcasts for this book release. I'm doing the plant medicine podcasts um, where it's like they're more interested in the plant medicine side. And then I'm doing entrepreneurship podcasts. And some people probably don't even know what plant medicine is. And then I'm doing music podcasts because, you know, we're, 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 we're targeting the, the, the whole music industry as well. And so they're probably, you know, more interested in the music than the entrepreneurship or the plant medicine. So anyways, this is an entrepreneurship podcast. So plant medicines and ayahuasca, to explain what this is, um, ayahuasca is a traditional medicine, plant medicine um, from the Amazon jungle. And um, it's generally composed of, of cooking two different plants from the Amazon together in a pot with water. One of those plants is called Benisteriopsis capi, which is a vine, um, also known as the ayahuasca vine. And that is then uh, kind of beaten and mashed traditionally with, with hammers or like a steel bar or like a stick to kind of break off the bark and smash up the vine a bit. Then you put that in a pot. Um, and then it's mixed with the chacruna leaf, which is, uh, cicotris BDD. Um, and that contains, uh, dimethyltryptamine. The vine contains monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which then allows that dimethyltryptamine to be absorbed by the stomach. Um, so you cook those two things together. It becomes like a, a very highly concentrated tea. And there are a number of, uh, of, uh, like indigenous traditions or other spiritual religious traditions. For example, the Santo Daime in Brazil, the União do Vegetal in Brazil. Um, And, uh, and they work with this plant medicine in a spiritual context, which is like, it can be used as a sacrament to connect with God or spirit or, or nature. Um, It's, it's also very effective for like, uh, um, you know, battling addictions or, or healing PTSD um, or kind of connecting with your life path or opening up creativity or improving relationships or really understanding yourself. For me, it was very useful for um, really toughening up my mind and finding my life vision. Um, <clears throat> so the, the particular indigenous tradition that we work with here at Soltara is called the Shipibo tradition. Uh, the Shipibo culture. There's about thirty or 40,000 Shipibo people in Peru. Um, There are other traditions, there's like, uh, there's the um, uh, other traditions in Colombia or or Ecuador, there's like the Mestizo tradition, there's also the uh, Quechua tradition in Peru, and they all kind of work with uh, ayahuasca in different ways. Um, and the Shipibo have a certain way of doing it. So what they do is, um, they, they, they serve the medicine in a ceremonial context. So here at Sultara, you know, it's like a, it's like a week long retreat. Um, it's composed of a lot of, of peripheral support, like therapeutic support. So people come here to really, you know, and it's an expensive, uh, retreat. So. Uh, it's a very, it's significant event for people. They come here, they spend a lot of money, they spend a, a week here, um, and it's, it, it can be very life transformational. So, um, you know, there's, there's conversations, there's really healthy food, there's some therapeutic support. And then each week there's four ayahuasca ceremonies, um, and during these ayahuasca ceremonies, People come into the maloca, which is like a big round kind of cone-shaped wooden building with a palm roof. Um, they sit around around the outside, so it's kind of like a circular thing. Everybody's got their mattresses that they sit on and purge buckets and like a little basket with all their things in it. And then the shamans, uh, so these shamans or healers, uh, we call them curanderos or shamanes, um, from Peru they're indigenous they we, you know they come up here from Peru and they and they work with us for a few months at a time and um they serve people this medicine it's it's in a shot glass about a two ounce shot glass uh, the medicine we get is actually made right here in Costa Rica um <clears throat> so the healers serve this this medicine to uh to the the participants And um and then it be the participants and go and they sit around this kind of circle. And then in about forty-five minutes or so, anywhere between like thirty minutes and ninety minutes, this massive psychedelic effect uh takes over. So it's a it's a it's a psychedelic medicine. Uh uh, you know, like dimethyltryptamine is very similar to like psilocybin, for example. Um, kind of very nature based. It can be very visual, there'd be a lot of kind of colors and a lot of very profound visions um, that differ by, by person. It can be very very psychedelic, or it can be a little bit psychedelic. It can be a little more physical, a little more like healing on the body. Um, but uh, but yeah, people then during these ceremonies, which last about four to seven hours uh, at nighttime, you know, so they start at say seven p.m. and it can go to midnight. It could go to two or three in the morning sometimes. The shamans uh they sing in their native dialect they kind of they're like energy healers in a certain way like they kind of and i don't want to sound too woo woo for your entrepreneurial (laughs) podcast but um they you know they have their own belief system and we put that at the forefront and in their belief system uh you know they 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 believe in like the movement of energy they believe in kind of positive and negative kind of spirits and entities that are in the room and that are maybe can, in your body, which they try to like push out and they chant and they sing and they do this kind of energy work on you all in their native language. Um, and then, uh, you know, like we have facilitators here who help with the process and then the ceremony is over and you do that four times in a week and it can be extremely powerful for people. So that's our general, uh, activity of business and we run you know we have 20 people here per week and we run about 45 weeks per year uh, wow. and we have three locations so um, you know oh, we have that, that,
1: that that's great to yeah. hear Dan like are you planning on maybe getting more locations or expanding out even more or what do you what, what are Absolutely. your plans like long term
0: yeah we just bought a, another beautiful beachfront property in Playa Coyote which is about 90 minutes from where I'm at now and we're going to build our best location yet. Um, we've got financing from one of the local banks here as well as some private money. Um, it's about a six million dollar project and uh, it's going to be just a spectacular location right on this gorgeous uh, prime beach that's like two kilometers long on the open pacific um, in a hot spot that's, that's kind of up and coming.
1: Wow, no, that, that's great. So. Yeah, back back to your book here now. So I know you wrote a previous book, right? I think it was called Pulse of the Jungle. So can you break yeah. give the listeners a little bit of idea what what that book was about, and how does the Twelve Laws either complement it or is it like a totally separate book altogether?
0: Sure. So so Pulse of the Jungle, um, that was really that that I wrote that in like 2016, and that um, that was. Really, a, a kind of a story meant to not so much be an instructional business book, but meant to be more of an inspirational story about how just a normal guy from Canada um, just walked the path, uh, the, going international and kind of finding my way um, to the Amazon jungle and building. That was, I basically wrote that once the first healing center uh, that I built in the Amazon jungle became really successful. It was, but, but I didn't feel like I didn't yet feel qualified to, to deliver like instructional business advice. It was more just like, here's how everything happened and how I got to this, you know, very unique and interesting position, um, in the Amazon jungle. Uh, and it also included some stories from other people about how, uh, you know ayahuasca, this medicine I've been talking about, had had impacted their lives in a in a long term way, not just in like an experiential kind of here's how crazy my trip was kind of way, but mm. but the actual meaning that it had for their lives. Um, and 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 then Twelve Laws of the Jungle differs in that after doing that again, after building up another location, getting it to success, uh, and then. And then, you know, as I explained, keeping that organization alive throughout the most treacherous time for businesses in recent history, um, you know, I I felt this time a lot more qualified to offer some real tactical, you know, instructional business advice.
1: Yeah, like I know throughout the book you discuss how Elon Musk pushed through the public's doubts and how he wanted to create Tesla, like where it is now. So why did you choose to include some of those strategies into yours?
0: Well, um like why did I include Elon in the book, or or so? Why did you
1: choose those? T- why didn't choose? Why did you choose some of his strategies to incorporate? Like obviously, because some people might yeah. say, oh well, because look at where Tesla is. So wouldn't we all want to mimic that, right? But. Is there more to it than that? Or, or like uh, you really mentioned it throughout, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was it, like, like that example was just outlining how, how strategy is so important in, in business. And like, sometimes you have to put, uh, sometimes you have to put the horse before the cart. Um, if you want to, uh, really advance your destiny forward. And so that was just, that was just about, you know, strategic that was an example about creating strategic checkpoints in order to reach your final destination. So, you know, Elon's final destination, uh, was he, you know, and his company mission is basically, he wants to help accelerate the world's transition into uh, renewable energy, right? Noble, noble, uh, uh, goal. Um, the problem with, uh, renewable energy, uh, is, that uh, the, the the public's perception is, uh, is not extremely favorable from a functional perspective. Um, and when he wanted to build electric cars, when he was starting this industry, he thought that electric cars could be really good, but the public didn't. Um, and his goal, you know, in support of transitioning the world to renewable energy was to have you know, majority of people owning uh, electric cars, like a small, you know, kind of electric car. That's, as I call in the book, a wimpy eco-conscious electric vehicle. Um, but but anyone who had tried electric cars in the past had failed um, either on performance or on uh, saleability because nobody, they're just, the demand wasn't there. Um, so what he did before he could get there he knew that he needed to change public's opinion on electric vehicles so instead of creating like his end goal first of like getting this affordable you know like the model 3 which is like mm-hmm. this affordable kind of small compact car that runs on electricity that you know should be ubiquitous throughout society that kind of style of vehicle um like he knew that he needed to shatter people's perceptions of uh electric vehicles first so instead of starting with that one he started with the the roadster which was just meant to be like the most like preposterously high performing and like ego stroking uh vehicle that he could possibly create so he you know worth two hundred thousand dollars but it goes zero to 60 in like 2.5 seconds or something like that you know, and um, it looks awesome. He built it on a Lotus body and it was like, wow, damn, that was the first example of electric cars that could actually beat a Lamborghini, you know? So then that, that raises people's eyebrows. It's like, okay. And then he went from that uh, to building the Model S, which was a $100,000 car, but equally as high performing um, and a little more functional in terms of it being a sedan. Um, and then, you know, starting starting the wave that way getting the early adopters who were highly capitalized to come in and buy these high-performing vehicles he started building his company building their experience building their name building their profile and then at the end of it you know now where they're at now they're they're completely sold out with from i mean they can barely they can't keep vehicles coming off the line fast enough and they have this thirty thousand dollar model three which is like one of the top selling cars you know in the united states
1: well that's the funny thing though uh,
0: Range
1: and yeah, yeah. That that's the funny thing, Dan. Because if you think about it, what most entrepreneurs maybe start with, they don't really start with like you know the good, better, best. And it's like, okay. We'll start with the good, so we can try to get like the masses to kind of buy into this, so we can show them. You know, we can before we go to the better and the best versions. But what you're saying, Elon went from the top first. He went for the best and worked its way down to the good. So like you said, get that early adopter. Say, oh yeah, okay, that's interesting. Because like, like you said, if if he tried that, let's start with like you know, the economy size one, then they'll be like, well, that, I don't know, we, we don't really see why that would be the one to go with. But the fact that you can, like you said, drive fast in a Lamborghini right away, and it looks sleek and everything. And yes, it's more expensive. But yeah, we're now working on getting more of the guess, the general car that most people can afford. And like you said, it's really hard to find a Tesla nowadays that you can, you can buy it. Because I think if I, let's say if I was ever big enough to try to get one of those, who knows how long it'll take for it. To, it might be what 2024, maybe by the time your model is ready, right?
0: I mean, I put a deposit down on a Cyber Truck like two years ago and it's still not off the line yet.
1: Oh boy. Wow. that That's how popular it okay. is. And then he's also trying to do this whole SpaceX thing as well or fly into the, going to outer space. I don't know if I'll ever, would you, would you go on that spaceship?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. How many I people can say they've yeah. been on one, right? very few very few all right so so back to so back to your book here so you, you you We're talking about this right now and like well, this is about entrepreneurship and let's talk about the the industry right now of just what do you think the general state of entrepreneurship is right now like do you see more or less or like people trying to couple of new things and where do you think it's going to go in the future
0: i think it's very important um i think i, I i'm actually very optimistic about, um, about the opportunities in entrepreneurship, you know, from now, I mean, going forward because, um, you know, based on global conditions right now, uh, you know, you're already seeing uh, supply chain move back very quickly to North America. So, you know, between Canada, U.S. and Mexico, And maybe you know kind of a Columbia something like that a lot of the supply chain that had shifted to Asia uh, in the past 30 years is going to come back and come back very quickly Um, so anybody who uh, anybody who is interested in like a, a production manufacturing engineering technology business the opportunities are very 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 ripe. I mean, you're going to you're going to end up seeing like government spending on bringing uh manufacturing back to United States. Um and it can't happen fast enough because, you know, you've you've you see this pressure uh from China on Taiwan right now. Um you know, that is a major major geostrategic risk for the Western world um, considering all the the computer chips that are produced in Taiwan um, and then you know as we saw in the, in the pandemic when you have like 80 percent of your supply chain based offshore then you're at really at the mercy of what happens offshore you're not you know like and and, and that can really uh that can really uh, damage your society at home so you're gonna see a yeah. lot of manufacturing coming back so I think you know um for entrepreneurs, there's huge opportunities in manufacturing, uh, stateside. But also at the same time, we're about to go through a very difficult economic situation. Um, there's there's uh, more than likely to be an extreme crash or recession, basically imminently. Especially if any of these conflicts get any worse, or if China goes into Taiwan, which is, mm-hmm. you know, more likely than not to happen in the near future. Uh, it's really going to, it's really going to make it hard to get anything done. So I would say, you know, hang on to your cash for the next year or two and, until things start picking back up. Um, or, uh, you know, wait until, wait until some deflation happens uh, before you're, you start buying property or equipment. Uh, because right now prices are high and it's about to go for a dip. Um, yeah. But but you know, optimistic about about the medium term to long term. Um, I've done a lot of reading on on uh, geopolitics and uh, geography and stuff like that. And I would recommend anybody to look up a guy named Peter Zihan, Z E I H uh, A N, or if you're in Canada, Z E I H A N, Peter. Uh, he's got awesome, awesome, awesome information about. uh uh, about how you know the next like zero to 30 50 years plays out in terms of um you know global economics and and geopolitics and stuff like that
1: yeah no like i I totally agree you're talking about like i think the pandemic really showed how countries were who are so reliant on importing all their stuff really kind of got Left, you know, left holding the bag because, like I say, I totally agree that I think I know Canada as well. They're trying to bring in more, you know, be more self sufficient, which I think every country should try to be as self sufficient as possible, right? So I feel really bad for like the third world countries where like ninety five percent of their stuff is imported, right? They they're oh, they took a huge punch in the gut on that one, and and I like you said about the creativity because that's how this podcast kind of started. I wasn't planning to be a podcaster. I was just doing some website mobile testing that needed good quality audio and uh you know i was like okay what else i can use this equipment for and for some reason i thought podcasting but i was like i don't know about what right and then i'm watching the news and like i tell people if you want to be depressed listen to the news but i was listening to the news and hear about all these small businesses kind of going under right and they're following all the rules and the lockdowns and they're all getting screwed over so i was like okay well Let's hear some that of their was, stories. That
0: was the most infuriating thing I've ever experienced in my life. man. Absolutely. These idiots in yeah, government like- who have no idea what it's like to build an organization, you know, and, and they ju- they just treat businesses like, you know, a dime a dozen um, making these I- insane rules that basically yeah. just how many hardworking people just got completely screwed over and not by necessity. I mean, then when, it, when they felt like it was just like, okay, we're going to stop talking about, all this stuff now. We're going to stop fear-mongering now. Everything's back to normal. Even though, like, same amount of people are going to the hospital or whatever. Like, there was... Yeah. It was just... Well, uh, it was utterly, uh, utterly uh infuriating for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, all the governments kind of dropped the ball on this because they took what I call the shotgun approach to to closures as opposed to it would be more like a sniper rifle to really understand, okay, what's really causing it? And we we, we shut it down sector by sector versus everybody shut down, right? Because some businesses couldn't handle that, right? Like, and, and it was really unfortunate that a lot of people unfortunately didn't didn't survive it, right? And unfortunately, they still had, like you said, like you had your experience yourself, you still had the balloon payment, you still had your mortgage payment, all the expenses were still there, but the supports yeah. for the people were either not there or they were only there and they only covered just a little bit, right? And you still had I to find ways-
0: Canada, the Canadian government, um, you know, offered, a $40,000 loan, Canadian dollar loan, which is like $30,000 U S. And it's like, yeah, but my balloon payments, 320 U S. So like, what's this going to do for me? You know, my <laughs> monthly expenses are yeah, like, that's not gonna grand US, be like on lockdown. So like, what is, what is this going to do for me? You know? So like, it's just clueless people, virtue signaling and trying to just, you know, show how ethical they are without being practical in any, in any, in any way. Um, Yeah, that was, uh, that was, at least Costa Rica, you know, Costa Rica was actually really sensible about it. They were, they overreacted at the beginning and they just shut down the whole country for like six, seven months. But then once they realized that they're about to lose their whole tourism sector and that people were going to actually go hungry and they were going to actually lose all their tax revenue and these, the real estate sector was actually going to collapse. They were like, okay, uh, we'll open the borders. So they just opened the borders in November of 2020 when so many other countries were still freaking out, like Canada for one, Australia, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, uh, but, you know, Costa Rica and the US opened up and we survived the first year. Uh, we basically survived all of 2021 on 100% American clients.
1: Oh, really? Oh. Wow.
0: Yeah. Because everywhere else like wouldn't let people leave or like the, like the regulations were too ridiculous.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it, it was, it was pretty tough. I have to definitely admit. So uh- hey, you do you need a voiceover? Well, look no farther. Northway capital group has your answer. Commercials and explainer videos, AVR and voicemail, health and wellness, corporate training and e-learning announcements, documentaries, and biography contact us on social media or email us at northwaycapitalgroup@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Now it's time for tips from the pro. All right, t- tips, we're going to hit our tips from the pro segment here. So this is more like we're going to say, we want to try to get into similar space of yours, in this case, about the writing process, but also like see we can, so see what type of landmines we can avoid that you might've stepped on there, Dan. So I guess the first uh, question for this one is, what what is the actual writing process for you? Do you do you set the mood in a certain way? Do you just if it's something that just comes to mind, do you just start writing? How how is your writing process like?
0: Well, I uh, I hired a a, a co-author um, Matt Cartagena, who uh, who helped me uh, with this particular book. Um, I had a co author for the first book as well, but with with this book. Um, it was very, it was an interesting process because, you know, I was just, I was right in the middle of, of, uh, you know, this whole kind of pandemic survival process. So, so I'm, you know, every single day I'm, I'm, I'm in the arena making, making uh, moves on the business chessboard. And then at night, uh, me and, uh, me and Matt Cartagena would, you know, we would have a call. He would interview me and like record the calls. And then, um, and and we would kind of distill, uh, distill the lessons that I was picking up from that business chessboard, and um, and um, you know, put those down in I in a digestible and succinct, uh, and engaging way, uh, and then, you know, it's kind of a back and forth process of, I would kind of set the tone for the chapter, um, with like you know a one or two page uh uh, uh overview, and then we would we would have these interviews and he would extract uh, his company's called unpack genius. And so it's kind of self-explanatory. He, he, he works with people to kind of unpack uh, what's, what's in their mind. So we would do this, he would, he would record, he would put together, uh, you know, like a, a chapter and then he would send it to me and then I would kind of edit and make suggestions and things like that. And that's how we, that's how we did the whole book. We got it done. And then it was, um and then we went to the publisher and then you know the publisher reviewed the whole manuscript and made a couple of suggestions and um and then we took it from there
1: nice wow it's so it's good to have help i think some people think they have to write the whole thing themselves and maybe in some cases you might have to just to get that thing going but i guess working with a co-author to at least help organize some of your thoughts right because if anyone just tries to write their own book, it'll probably be all over the place. And I guess having yeah. someone with experience of that was able to structure it in a way that, like you said, that's very digestible, right? Which is really good to hear. So how do you, so the next question is, how do you filter out what stories you want to include and others you had to cut? Because eventually, I, I mean, you had a, an extraordinary career where you have like probably 1.5 billion stories your entire lifetime here. So how were you able to narrow down the ones that you ended up including in the book and ones that, you know, were this close, but I have to not include it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of like um, intuition or, you know, you're, you you just want to be very careful not to have something like really kind of long and, and monotonous and you want to keep things kind of tight and, and punchy. So that was just an interactive process between me and Matt. We didn't really, you know, have a set system. It was just kind of an analyzing on a case-by-case basis.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. So what should an aspiring author... I guess what type of things should they be careful of when they start to try to write their own manuscript or their own book? Like I know you mentioned before, not to get too uh, long-winded for when some of these chapters. Is there any other tips you can give them to say, okay, I know even you had a co-author that we helped this, but here's some things you might want to be careful of.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think uh, a trap that that some people can fall in when writing is is making the book about them when the book should be about the reader. You know, you want to you want to make sure that in every sentence your objective is to deliver value to the reader rather than, you know, talk about just like, like, you know, your, yourself or whatever, if you're doing a nonfiction book. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the pro on in terms of the actual uh, content. Um, but, you know, because I had, I had the author there who really, Uh, helped with that but um i found that is one of my uh one of my pitfalls is you know it's it's your life so you know all these things are important to you but a lot of those things are not important to anyone else so you really want to be careful of like you know not boring the reader by by uh talking about things that aren't important to them
1: right yeah like you want to have a little bit of that hook and that, that that nice big event that happens in the end. Like when my wife tried to explain to me what the story she was trying to go through, where at the end of the day it was like my aunt in law wanting to buy a melon and the price was too expensive. And she was my wife was taking me on this journey where it's like, So she wanted to buy a melon. She's like, Yeah. You think you could have started with that as say that as opposed to telling me on this ten minute tirade of all the things she was kind of going through to find the perfect melon. I'm like, Okay. I, I could have done with just saying she found a great melon on a great price. Oh, good. We got to the end of the story. Excellent. Versus uh, that other thing. So what, what about this situation? So what do you find is the best tips for now for the entrepreneur that has to deal with either a difficult client or difficult staff? Like what's your, you, you run a company of like 40 people, you said, and growing. What's your best uh, strategy for them on how to deal with that?
0: What do you mean by difficult?
1: Difficult could be whether it's clients not paying or maybe it's difficult staff in general that are maybe they're a toxic they're bringing some toxicity to the workplace so how do you in your best environment what's the best advice you can deal with or you can tell people how to the how you how they should try to deal with stuff like that
0: well i mean it, sometimes you just need to cut people whether that's clients or staff um there's a lot of uh, business theory out there that suggests you know you should be constantly rotating out your you, you know your bottom 10 percent of staff or Uh, your, your bottom 20% of clients, even Um, Tim Ferriss talks a lot about the, the Pareto principle or the 80, 20 rule where, you know, you've got some, you've got a small percentage of customers who cause the vast majority of your headaches. You've also got a small percentage of employees who cause the vast, vast majority of your headaches. And, um, it's better just to get rid of those. You get rid of a small percentage of people and then you get rid of the vast majority of your headaches. Um, You know, I also have a, uh, a chapter in the book plan for snake bites, which, which provides a few kind of um, uh, strategies for, for dealing with, with that type of thing. But, you know, sometimes money can make the problem go away. If you've got say um, a difficult, person who's trying to, you know, take you to court for something or, um, or, or betray you for something. Um, you know, you can sometimes pay your way out of it. But the, the best prevention is always the best medicine. So if, if you're, you're conscious about who you bring into your orbit, don't ever trust anybody completely, because people are two faced. Um, and, um, you know, it's almost like I, I kind of believe that everyone is gonna betray you eventually, it's just a matter of when. So, um, so you know, you just, you just need to be careful and you need to not put all your eggs in one basket and you always need to have a backup plan, but more importantly, just constantly be surveilling the landscape for, uh, for potential uh, issues and then try to eliminate, try to cut them out at the root as, as soon as possible.
1: No, no, that's great advice. I've had some guests that have talked about, like you said, that pre-screening stuff of actually bring before being like being very picky of who type of client you come, you bring in, but even to the, some of the point of actual employees. Like I think I had one guest where she was saying that they almost don't hire on pure technical skills anymore. They can be, they can have a doctorate, an MBA, but if they're a toxic person, they don't want to have anything to do with them. Cause it's like her rationale was you can't teach them to be a good person right? Which is is unfortunate, right? right? Hey, do you need an error-free website? Do you need transcriptions that's accurate and on time? Would you like to remove noise from your video or audio recording? Do you need a spokesperson for your business? If so, we can help. At Northway Capital Group, we are happy to announce that we are now providing website testing services, audio transcriptions, and audio cleanup, as well as spokesperson services. We would love to help you on your next project. Contact us for more information at northwaycapitalgroup at gmail.com the rapid fire round all right here we go for the rapid fire round okay so dan what would the 15 year old self imagine you'd be doing right now
0: probably exactly the same thing i'm doing
1: wow all right that's great best tip to achieve a work-life balance for a small business owner
0: um make sure you got lots of uh profit margin and so you can pay people to do almost everything for you i try to outsource basically every single task and duty that i can and i i right now i only end up doing the stuff that nobody else can do which is very few things
1: okay Well, good to hear all right another of our fun stuff which which word or phrase do you overuse the most?
0: Hmm. Probably the F word. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Love it. All right. What is one subscription you cannot live without?
0: Uh, apple.
1: Apple. Okay, good. Related to food now. If if you can name a sandwich after yourself, what would be in it, and what would it be called?
0: Uh, What would be in it? Uh, Ham, turkey, lettuce, tomato, green peppers, uh, pickles, onions, mustard, salt and pepper, mayonnaise. Um, And I would call that... uh, the Cleveland,
1: <laughs> <laughs> love it. Put on a shirt. Excellent. If you could live in any other country than where you are now, what would it be, and why?
0: Um, I actually, I think Costa Rica is the best country to live for me, and uh, uh, for so many ways. Um, if I didn't live here, I'd probably go live in Florida.
1: Nice. Nice. Florida is really nice. I've been there a few times.
0: Why? Because it's a friendly environment for, for entrepreneurs. Uh, The weather is decent. Uh, There's plenty of green space. The beaches are good. The people are cool. Great restaurants, decent roads, uh, great economic outlook and super convenient in terms of uh, flight logistics.
1: Nice. Now, in your opinion, does Governor DeSantis stay as the governor or do you think he'll try yeah. to become president?
0: Um, I think that um, DeSantis serves a very important role in as governor of Florida. I think he'd be a good president. However, I don't think Trump's stepping out of the way. And um, unless DeSantis joins Trump, which I think might be not a great uh possibility because uh they're both number one guys. Um DeSantis doesn't want to be number two guy. I, however, if it's with Trump under the expectation that for these four years he's number two and then he goes for another eight years as number one, I could put potentially see that happening. I could also see Trump going with uh female candidates such as Tulsi Gabbard or Nikki Haley. Um hmm. So I would say I would say the twenty twenty four ticket is either Trump plus DeSantis or Trump plus Nikki Haley or Trump plus Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I could see a wild card via Mike Pompeo in there somewhere as well. But um, you know, if you really want to beat the Democrats at their own game, you get Tulsi Gabbard or uh, or Nikki Haley, who are both women of color, except with mm. Republican values.
1: There you go. Interesting i curious to see how that's how got to work. I know we still got a couple of years, or maybe actually, no, less than a couple of years, right? Because now we're almost approaching the end of 2022. So I can't believe yeah, it's almost so a, the I end. I
0: mean, the, mid, the midterms are coming up. Um, the midterms are coming up in a couple of weeks. and I think yeah. if, if the Republicans take uh, the House and the Senate, I think you're going to see Trump announce his, his candidacy right away. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then it's going to be a battle for who's on the ticket with him. Um, but unless Trump, if Trump gets taken out by, uh, by anything, whether it be one of, you know, the investigations that's, that's breathing down his neck or whether it be, um, for any other reason, I think then you'll see DeSantis step up because he's the next, he's the next popular guy in line, but if Trump can Mm -hmm. in any way, shape or form run it seems like he's going to be the guy and I can see him getting uh, either Nikki Haley or uh, Tulsi Gabbard on his T- ticket.
1: Interesting to hear. All right. Last question on here. As to all my guests there, Dan, what is your theme song and why? So that, that song hits, you're walking down, people hear that song. They're like, Oh, Dan's coming.
0: Jeez. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, how about i'll plug my own band animals there by savage go. existence
1: there we go that's the steam song <laughs> yeah. love it animals so, by
0: savage existence. go check it out on spotify
1: oh we'll, well definitely let's send the links out to the users as well as where so where can people find the book for right now then
0: um well it's actually the book uh the book goes out tomorrow so if if you uh uh, if you, uh, go to my Instagram, uh, at Daniel C. Cleveland, uh, you can, you can register for a notification, or if you want to help us out with, uh, uh, with a review on the book, we'll send you a free ebook and, um, uh, the Kindle version in exchange for leaving a review. But if you, the hardcovers or the paperbacks are all going to be available, uh, on Amazon tomorrow, Um, and so, you know, you can connect with me on Instagram or connect with our email list by checking out, uh, that, that link in the bio on Instagram. I think you're also going to put up some, some links in the description here. Um, but, uh, yeah, Daniel C. Cleveland is the, is the main hub or at my website. If you're not on Instagram at Daniel sorry, www.danielcleland.com. And you can, we'll have everything up there.
1: And excellent and and your book has also been forwarded by Patrick Bed David, uh, who's like one of the top YouTube entrepreneurial uh, channels I think ever. I think that's the one I enjoy listening to. I listen to his podcast. I like watching his videos as well. And he, and he wrote the forward for it. How did you how did you get that from working with him?
0: Uh, well, um, that's uh, Law Three of Twelve Laws of the Jungle: Learn to Hunt. And uh, and I'm not a about the Law of Reciprocity. So you know, I got involved with his community. Um, I, you know, invested in like some consulting and some mentorship and, you know, contributing to his, uh, mentorship program and stuff like that. And then when, you know, when, when the time came to have a forward written for the book, I was able to, uh, to, you know, access him and, um, and fortunately also had some resources to compensate him for his time to write a forward. So, um, yeah, that was how we got it done.
1: Wow. That's great to hear. And I know it's going to be a good book. I know I'm going to probably try and make sure I look, I read it as well and listen, try to follow that as well to help me grow my business and be as successful as, as Dan is right here. So any other final thoughts, Dan, that you can give the listeners?
0: Uh, no, sir. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope you guys are able to check out the book and connect with it. And hopefully it, it provides you with some value to, uh, to build your life and and build your personal freedom and wealth.
1: Do you have a small business story to share? The SME stories podcast is looking for entrepreneurs to share their tales of success, failure, and everything. If you're interested in being a guest on our show or know someone would be a great fit, please contact us at Northway capital group at gmail.com. That's Northway capital group at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the SME stories podcast, which is owned by Northway capital group. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Northway capital group.